0: Hi, I'm Jenny Howard, and I'm the head of education development at Xianjiao Tong Liverpool University in China.
1: And I'm Charlie Reese, I'm director of RPG CERT and an educational developer at XJTLU. And you're listening to the Academy's Developing Practice Podcast.
2: to the next episode of the University of Liverpool Academy's Developing Practice podcast. In this episode, myself, Alex Owen, academic developer, and Matt Davis, organisational developer, had the opportunity to meet with Jenny Howard and Charlie Rees of Xi'an Tong Liverpool University in China. We unpacked what transnational education is and discussed the value of it for students. We hope you enjoy.
3: So hello uh, Jenny and Charlie, it's great to have you both with us today. Um, the topic of transnational education is obviously incredibly important to our institution. So what we're really looking to do is to explore your perspectives on that. Um, but before we start, and uh, we do this with every podcast, we'd like to get a bit of background from you both um, about uh, your professional experiences and and how you, you came to be in your roles that you're in at the moment. So. Can we start with Charlie?
1: Okay. Um, It's nice to be here. Uh, I've been teaching for about 20 years and I started as an elementary school teacher actually, um, which I think is quite valuable for a developer because it's informed my classroom practices, the way I motivate people, this type of thing, and being student-centered. You know, and then I moved uh, in New York City to being an adjunct, mostly teaching composition at a, a small college and then moved to China about nine years ago where I was a lecturer first at uh, Beijing Normal University in Zhuhai, or BNUZ, Beishirda Da Zhuhai. My wife wanted to move to Suzhou, so I joined XJTLU, Xi'an Tong Liverpool University, and that's because of it, well, it was because I thought, oh, I want to start training teachers, and they had a very strong, for China, Program in professional development and this type of thing. I think it was maybe the only PG cert outside of Hong Kong or something. Right.
3: Um,
1: so I became progressively involved in both the scholarship of learning and teaching and actually delivering sort of large-scale PD both for the language center at that time and externally for Chinese universities. Um, and then was transitioned to being an educational developer and now I'm director of RPG cert.
4: Fantastic. So you've moved from the States nine years ago. Yes. Um, Obviously, there are very big differences. What are are the big significant differences between living in those two places?
1: Um, I would like to think I'm not an idiot in every context that's uh, English language based, but in the Chinese (laughs) language context, I'm always uh, very far behind. Mm -hmm. So that's a big difference. Um, Are
4: you learning the language?
1: Yes, but not as... Diligently as I should be, which is embarrassing being a developer, but you know, just not what I'm paying attention to. Yeah.
0: Um
1: uh, The differences also are, you know, China's very different socially, politically, Mm. culturally, um, and the depth and richness of this difference is something that, you know, You don't really know until you've been in it and explored it for some time And that actually has very much informed my approach to professional development.
3: Lovely. Okay, so Jenny.
1: <laughs>
0: um, so I've been teaching maybe for about 12 years. Um, I started out teaching down in South America, doing like English for English as a second language, and then I moved to Korea, ended up coming to XJTLU, starting in the language center. Um, very interested in providing support in that regard, and I moved up through the language center to become the year one manager, actually. So I was in charge of the year one language provision and in the process of studying, um, I mean actually working on in the process of, of working in the language center, I decided I wanted to start a doctorate in educational leadership and uh, the problem that I'm focusing on is how to provide support to students particularly in an English and medium instruction environment. Um, in, in particular with XJTLU we don't have a language entry requirement so something that I became very interested in was the fact that although The Language Centre is very focused on providing language support to students in an EMI setting. The rest of the university isn't really focused on developing that. So this is the big area of um, interest for me that I'm focused on in my doctorate and while working on that area I've managed to transition actually from being in the Language Centre to moving into the educational development uh, sphere in
4: the university. Brilliant. So you're doing your doctorate at the moment? Yes. So just to outline for us in terms of the key themes?
0: So yeah, my focus is basically how to provide, uh, how to create um, a continuing professional development program to support students in this environment, and it's focused specifically on uh, academic staff. Okay. And um, I'm trying to do it through a distributed leadership approach and mm-hmm. thinking about. Um, Uh, double loop learning and also about uh, like learning culture theory because I understand that this is going to require kind of a change of identity for academic staff and thinking about how they approach teaching and um, it's I don't anticipate it being a quick change to try to like get staff to think about how to change their practice but this is what I'm investigating right now
4: fantastic And lots of different experiences in terms of working in South America and Korea and and now where you are. Are there any key themes in terms of things that you've learned from those experiences?
0: I think the thing that I'm learning and continuing to learn is thinking about culture and not, you know, we always look at everything through our own lens of culture. And you bring your own, you know, preconceptions and uh, yeah and, and so you have to really kind of suspend that when you interact with anyone because you, everyone's first knee-jerk reaction is to through your own lens react to something without actually having the cultural context contextual understanding of what the other person's bringing to it so I mean actually right now I'm reading a lot about organizational culture and the uh, you know, from the perspective of Edgar Schein who started as a an, uh, cultural anthropologist and now he's very much focused on in organizational development and culture but he very much advocates for understanding the cultural aspect if you're thinking about organizations or anyone interacting within each other especially like cross-disciplinary in a cross-disciplinary manner or across cultures within a discipline right there's a lot of different factors to
4: consider yeah I think you're right in terms of that understanding of different cultures across an international understanding but also as you're saying within an institution there's so many different cultures that's right there really are yeah Yeah. i guess you see that matt in your in your role in terms of organizational development yeah it's
3: part it's very much uh, a big part of my role is to try and get in there and understand the cultures and and then try and understand maybe why something isn't working as a result of that i'm sure um not always easy to unpick Um, a lot of historic things in there and you know this is the way we've always done it, and this is, <laughs> mm-hmm. and therefore, this is the way it, it shall be. Yeah. Some you, you sometimes get that. Which for is um, not the best answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's
4: See it as a it's challenge. So, yeah, <laughs> yes, yes.
0: I think for, people are very comfortable about maintaining status quo, so it takes really a lot of thinking about, um, you know, awareness raising and making people aware of why they need to perhaps entertain another perspective and how it can impact them. Sure. Yeah. I
1: think it's uh, also like the, you know, we're the chameleons on the tartan rug. So we have to talk to people the way they understand things Mm. in order to motivate them to increase capacity and develop. Yeah,
4: Yeah, absolutely. That's very spot on. Brilliant. Well, um, today we're thinking um, about transnational education specifically. So I just thought it would be great if we could start in terms of if you could define what that actually is in terms of um, your understanding and then linking it in a bit with your work.
1: Um, thinking about transnational education, I usually start with a negative definition, um, thinking how it's different from international education. And the difference would be, you know, you're an international student if you go to another country and study. You're a transnational student if you are in a different place from the institution awarding your degree. And so the distance uh, compounds a lot as well as sort of the ICT issues of of can you communicate effectively and then is that communication itself effective? So there's the language and, and cultural conceptions and that's how I would basically define TNE. I think traditionally in the literature there's been a lot of dichotomy between overseas and home institutions and what this means as well and the changes in understanding that show the sort of epistemic maturation of, of transnational education
4: so are we talking just to be clear in my head are we talking about students staying in their home nation but um attending an institution where um that institution is based internationally or is that too basic no that would be my interpretation that's enough okay i
1: mean i also think we can over theorize this and it doesn't necessarily reward us to say oh here you know is the typology of transnational institutions and and forms? Sure. If we understand what through the student experience, that's what'll help us more.
0: Okay. Uh, I I agree. I mean, your general summation is precisely what I had in mind when, when we when we think about it.
4: Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then, um, could you both unpack for us a little bit in terms of if we take that as our understanding of what we're talking about? How does that link specifically to your to the work that you're doing?
0: Well, um, as I alluded to before, thinking about an EMI and the language challenges that we face in our particular context, um, we have an added challenge in that we don't have a language entry requirement. Mm -hmm. So because of the Chinese Ministry of Education guidelines, uh, the requirement is that uh, for entry to the university, it is Gaokao score, which is the national entry exam. Mm -hmm. So although there is an English component to the exam, um, that's not the sole metric that we use for admission. So, it's the overall performance on the exam. So, if they have, uh, they, it's possible to compensate for poor language ability on the test with stronger scores in the Chinese section or the math mm-hmm. section. And further compounding this issue is the fact that although the Gaokao is a national exam, there are 35, I think, 35 provinces, zones, autonomous regions in China, and every region has its own version of the test. Which, is, can be scored, right. which can be scored differently, okay? okay. So uh, um, a high score from the more affluent east of the country would not be comparable with something from the interior or the, um, the, the west of the country, right? Mm-hmm. Further to that, <laughs> there are you? Gaokao reforms going on where they're discussing, well, it's going to happen by 2020, and they started piloting it in 2017, in particular in our province, about removing English from the Gaokao. So students will still have to complete an English component of the test, but they have the opportunity to do it in advance of actually writing the Gaokao, which is the big final exam that they move towards. So when they first enter university, they—I mean, sorry—when they first enter high school, they could take the English test in the first year, get it done, and then mm-hmm. they don't have to worry about it and think about it in English mm-hmm. for the next two or three years. They're going to think only about working towards the rest of the Gaokao score. Interesting. So then, by the time they enter our university, if they haven't done any work in English for the past two years because they're only focusing on getting everything ready for the Gaokao, although they might have performed well on the test if they're not engaging. So this results in, we have an issue where 50 to 20% of the students every year enter the university with A1 or A2. Okay.
1: That's yeah. the secret scale. Yeah,
0: yeah. and um, so the broader the broader population, there's probably about only 15% of the students who actually enter at B2+. plus. So most kids come in at B1. So it's a very big challenge that obviously the Language Centre is addressing, but this is why there's a need for developing professional development support across the broader university for them, for staff to think about how they can support the language challenges faced by
4: students. So just explain a bit of the broader context for us. Are are all your courses in English then?
1: Yes. Supposedly we're in EMI, and I want to add just for anybody who's listening, uh, the Gaokao is the university entrance exam in China, and it's life-defining. It's, yes. it's huge in all students' lives. And if you think about massification in the European or UK context, it's more massive in the land of superlatives.
4: Okay, yeah.
0: And further to that, I mean just to add to what Charlie has said, there are basically, there's four categories of higher education institutions in China. So everybody is working to try to make it into the Tier 1 category, which right. is what we are. And if students don't make it into Tier 1, then they you know, they have a chance to perhaps go to Tier 2 or Tier 3 or Tier 4. But obviously everyone's aiming for that, but there's yeah. only a limited number of positions at Tier 1 level. Sure, okay. Yeah.
4: So um, we have students who are coming to university to study in English, but they could have taken their English exam a couple of years ago. Because obviously with our... Um, entrance requirements. Over here we have something called the IELTS, which is ensuring that they can um, engage in the English language at a certain level, Um, but you don't have that, that's a a massive challenge for you. Okay.
1: Part of being an EMI institution or a transnational institution is preparing our students to be able to function professionally or academically because we're an English language medium in an English environment. Um, And this would be true if we were teaching in Russian. Uh, and thinking about that or any other language, so it's, it's part of what we owe to our students to prepare them for the world, part of what's linked to our ranks and the league tables and everything else.
0: Okay. And I thinking about what we owe to our students, uh, and also maybe we have to think about what we owe to our staff, because it's not part, something that I'm very interested in is m- communicating to the broader academic uh, community within SJTLU that we don't have an entry requirement because it's not, most staff don't, are not aware of it, right? So by, not only, when we, the plan that I have for creating the support for staff also involves actually educating them to the fact that the students, many students are coming in at a lower language level because there seems to be a tendency, and this, I know this from my years as the manager of the year one program in, in EAP, um, that academics have a tendency to blame the language center for not doing their job, mm-hmm. right? And that's, this compartmentalization of responsibility is hugely problematic. So, I mean, I understand that someone who's a biologist or an architect hasn't necessarily come to university to have to then think about teaching through language and using language strategies to support mm-hmm. their students. However, this is the environment that they're in. Right so okay. this is this is something that I want to use as kind of the consciousness raising saying look you're in an you're in an EMI context so in order to successfully teach your students you're going to have to think about implementing some strategies through from a language perspective mm. in addition yeah. to helping them yeah. understand the content okay
4: And across the sector, there is that massive focus now on understanding the kind of holistic experience of our students, isn't it? And understanding where they're coming from, not just about content delivery, but actually a student will never learn the content until we understand their holistic experience and how we as academics and professional services can support our students Mm -hmm. in that way. I think
1: a lot of my work is focused on this. So I do a lot with incorporating everyone's values and thinking a lot about inclusion, diversity, even unconscious bias, but developing tools to develop staff so that they're aware of what might be student expectations of what a student does, what staff does, what is the value of higher education. And really this just starts with once we start having a conversation, we can see perspectives, but then do we truly understand one another?
4: That was a question I I wanted to ask you because I'm really interested in that in terms of Working in an international context, how do you ensure that the academics you're working with don't bring that unconscious bias? And in terms of helping them to understand the context that they're working with,
1: um, we have all kinds of narratives from all kinds of people. Um, it's there, and what we do is what anybody does, it's just a little richer or deeper in our context. But we're working on having conversations about being open in order to, like, think about equality of access, inclusion, and diversity. So the professional values that everyone should have, you know, we, we create easier access by looking at our culture. So um, one of the projects that I've launched already is um, rethinking educational development through classical Chinese knowledge. So I have a version of um, the UKPSF or the professional standards framework that's aligned to quotes <coughs> from the Analects of Confucius, uh, I'm looking at Taoist concepts like effortless action to talk about um, teaching in super complex environments, or just relations of educator to student, and who's supposed to do what.
4: Interesting, and this is the research that you were presenting at CEDA conference last week.
1: Yeah, so last week, very specifically, I was talking a bit about um, the Confucian version of the UK PSF and what staff's reactions to it were, and. Um, I'm still talking to the H.E.A. about making sure the PSF or the professional standards are in the Confucian version because otherwise it's not useful. But the point isn't to replace anything. The point is thinking about who we are as an institution and opening up access to reflection and professional values. And in the course of this, it's also deepening it. And there are different reactions. Some people say, you know, UK PSF is clear enough. I don't need anything else. And then great, that's fine. Other people say, oh, you know, this is amazing. You're just showing the universality of Confucius thought. And so it's really about, you know, our differences are far more superficial than our similarities. We're all educators. We're all hopefully interested in the student learning experience.
4: And you say you've shared this with advanced HE, and has it been well received?
1: Um, I haven't gotten the reception back. There's okay. been, I mean, I've just done it, so I'm waiting for the feedback. Mm-hmm. Um but you know I'm also working on an article about doing it and why I did it and the real reason was um, the Akawaruni from the Queensland University of Technology is a Maori values based UK PSF and when I saw it I just said yes this you know why haven't I done that why didn't I think of it Yeah. and so I'm hoping that people in specific contexts around the world say the same thing Brilliant, well, okay. Jenny
4: that links doesn't it to what you were saying in terms of understanding the cultural context and. Mm. I think that's what you're trying to do, Charlie, is yeah. to really embed the UKPSF in a cultural context to help people to, to clearly <clears throat> apply it to their practice. Yeah, um, kind of extending from that and things that I've been
0: thinking about for helping to help the people to understand the culture and where we're at is, because um, Charlie's talking about like, diversity and access, and I mean, I've come recently to, to think about universal design for learning mm-hmm. and how we can apply it in our context. So um, something, and I, I, it's nothing that I've done yet. I'm still exploring it and talking about it with my team. Where we're thinking about how we could to get people to engage with it because it's going to involve, um, obviously, a bit of a part, uh, a bit of work on the part of academics to think about how they deliver their content. Mm -hmm. But I mean, again, I wanted to show them if we're here for the student experience, how thinking about how you design your activities will better support the students, and. One thing that I'm very interested in this regard is something that I've come across called um, Decoding the Disciplines, or basically it's about um, helping to make bottlenecks visible to academics because as an expert in their area, um, when they assign a task or they tell a student to do something, there are probably a lot of steps that they've gone through automatically because of their level of expertise that a student wouldn't be able to understand. So there's a procedure that was developed at the University of Indiana, where um, they kind of get educational developers to work and have professional conversations, and they also will bring together other uh, academics from other departments, where they'll get them to think about a bottleneck in their learning, and get them to then explain their process to someone who doesn't know anything about that area of expertise and in that process the other person is saying okay well explain that part to me because how did you get there I don't understand that so it's trying to think about okay this is where students are having problems and oh I didn't realize that this was why they were having uh, you know what the barrier was. So it's, this is um, something that I'm looking forward to hopefully piloting in semester two. I want to like, find the champions in different departments, bring them together, mm-hmm. have a conversation, and then we can kind of plot out a strategy for getting them to think about it and then over time maybe check in every month or few months. And see where it's going and yeah it's just at the early stages of development in my ideas right now i
4: think that idea of professional conversations is Mm. really interesting professional dialogue um to to think about bottlenecks and to think about the enhancement of Mm. how we engage in our academic practice Mm
3: -hmm. it also sounds similar to something that um i did a few years back and it wasn't in he sector it was in a completely different sector um but it was based on um Understanding why customer service falls down. So there's a sim, there's some synergies there because we, there was um, what we did. We completely broke down the process into in, into very very minute level, and then we brought in uh, senior management to 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 see what what was wrong with the process. And we said to the people who were doing the process on a daily basis, if you could if you could rewrite this mm. and start it from scratch, how would you do that? And then so they went away in a black piece of paper and said, in an ideal world, we would do it like this and it was we ultimately the the steps that it took to do something and i think in this example it was like um, how to fix someone's leaky tap um so it was it was in a housing uh, organization um we reduced those amount of steps down into into like five or six steps and the customer was was over the moon yeah um so yeah that breaking down yeah. of things to into it's I mean, it definitely really helps.
0: everybody has a different way like, there are different thought processes the different ways of connecting ideas and just because something comes together for you very quickly and yeah. you understand it immediately doesn't mean that someone else does yeah. right and so it's particularly with students not only not only undergraduate students but then if you have them also facing language challenges on top of that mm-hmm. so there's the cognitive stress of first of all I have to you know try to f- be come inducted into this academic discipline, and then beyond that, the language challenge. So there has to be very, very specifically thinking about if the barrier, I mean, I think in our context, the barrier is definitely related to content, but also, what, what's the language barrier? How can you provide some scaffolding and support in that regard to help them get yeah. there?
1: Yeah, I think, Matt, what you just described is basically the cutting edge of curriculum design today. Mm. Right. And this is exactly the conversations we're having at CETA and other places about how do we remap this in a way that's really efficient, that makes sense, so that it does what it's supposed to do? Yeah, sure, you know, I'm, I'm really passionate
3: about that. Um, systems thinking and, and, and work around that is something I'm really keen on mm. on spreading across this university as well as, well, it Just I, I integrate it into my daily life anyway, yeah. so it makes sense. So, like you're brushing your teeth, and you think, oh, this is the to it Yeah, <laughs> what, what can I do at the same time with brushing my yeah. teeth to make my day more efficient? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> comes across that you're really passionate about the things that you're doing, but have you got some real challenges that you're you're
1: uncovering and you're thinking, oh my word, how am I going to unpick these? Um, (laughs) The biggest challenge I see for us professionally is, you know, we have to come to the UK to participate in professional organisations. And so we have this vision of an association for people working in English in U.K. and European or U.S. style institutions so that it would fit the approach that we generally take to learning and teaching so that we can mutually support one another, share resources, um, particularly for people that are isolated in small places, um, and then to amplify what knowledge we develop to help everyone around the world think differently about development. And maybe that's a very small voice, maybe not, we don't know. But... Um, that would be one challenge the other challenge is in a uk style university in china we have a lot of very transient faculty for different reasons and they're coming also from really diverse backgrounds in a way that maybe doesn't happen even in an international university in the uk or somewhere Mm. else so dealing with expectations of staff about what they're supposed to do and getting them to care about the student learning experience rather than the teacher teaching duty mm-hmm. um, can be a challenge.
0: From a, and from an organizational perspective, two things that I'm really very focused on thinking about um, is one. Um, what sort of what sort of recognition can come through uh, the PDR review process because um, you know staff are continually saying you know I have to focus on research my focus is on research my HR only cares about research right but if we and, and similarly the university obviously cares very much about research although it's come down from the top that they also want us to start focusing on professional development but if there's no and there aren't necessarily explicit uh, incentives given for professional development, but if we were to find a way to build in proper recognition of CPD within the uh, PDR framework, that's one way of, of helping yeah. in that regard. Yeah. Um, and then another thing that I'm really very concerned about is trying to work with HR to think about our hiring practices and how, because like it's centralized through HR and they can give advice to departments, but I believe strongly that in the hiring process, through recruitment we have to think about the questions that we're asking when we bring in academic staff about what their experiences are teaching in an EMI how they could deal with these challenges and th- that I mean right from the the interview process we should be raising awareness to this and it should be definitely built in so okay great you're a, a world re- you know renowned researcher in this area but how do you deal with teaching in this environment because it, we can't just be recruiting people to think only about their research
1: practice right sure. you know sure. our, our University motto starts out, we are a research-based institution, as I'm sure most of your listeners are. I always wonder, like, what if developers wrote those or students wrote them? It would be the student learning experience here, Mm. so the focus would be totally different. Yeah, yeah.
4: Yeah. Okay, so in terms of the student voice, um, what what are the students telling you in terms of their experience of um, transnational education?
1: Yeah, um, you know, they come in and it might be normal for any student arriving at university to not know what to expect exactly because it's a different form of learning, mm-hmm. tertiary education. But we are hoping that our staff is innovating and doing things in a progressive way based, you know, informed by evidence in all, all environments related to learning. And so when you ask someone who's very used to Um, a more passive model of just receiving information so they can get the right answers Mm -hmm. to start developing their own knowledge and understanding through communicative activities and things like this. The students don't understand that and they need to have it explained to them and they need to be eased into it and a lot of the instructors as well. And so, you know, their expectations of what a teacher does and what a student does might be very, very different from someone who, with a different background. Um, my students, I was teaching a class on um, you know, environmental approaches uh, through Taoism, or using Taoism to think about environmentalism. And my students said, oh, you're the Wu Wei teacher, and Wu Wei means do without doing. Uh, because I wouldn't do anything I was having them do everything and they meant (laughs) this was an insult they were not happy but I was very happy I'm like yes I'm the wu-wei teacher and um, I've now developed this theory about uh, not only teaching and learning but motivating students from a Chinese context Mm -hmm. to understand the teacher should be wu-wei because the teacher is not there to do things the student is there to do things Chinese students are incredibly active learners in a way that most instructors can't see. Mm-hmm. and This is sort of an emerging theme for me. Mm-hmm. I've noticed in almost every context, they're on social media supporting one another, right. helping with research, answering questions, uh, talking about assignments and other things, and this isn't visible to us. And um, yeah, and so, like if you think about the strengths of Chinese culture and the networks and the yeah. support, that's happening in our learning environments, it's just not, what the instructors can see. And so I would say to everyone out there if you have lots of Chinese students, ask them, "Are they doing this?" and don't take it over, but ask, how can you help or support them?": There's yeah. so much
4: we can learn from that in terms of networks. And we've yeah. seen um, kind of in a Western culture where students do set up those networks. They're yeah. incredibly effective, but we, we're just not desi- we don't normally do that in terms of it's, that's really interesting in terms of what the students are yeah. doing.: know those context. networks
3: outside of the VLA.
1: Of course they are, yes. Yeah. They're usually on they're WeChat. Room. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, okay. But I guarantee you they're here at Liverpool. They're certainly at our yeah. school. Yeah. Um, and I think they're all over the world.
4: Brilliant. Thanks, guys. There's, there's so much richness in there and so much um, that we can go away and reflect on. We like to finish each podcast um, asking you for just three or four kind of take-home tips um, that the listeners could reflect on in terms of their own personal practice. Um so Charlie, I think you're going to give us some tips, but if there are there three or four things um, that we could reflect on in terms of transnational education, what would they be?
1: Yeah. Um, I think the top tip I would give is you don't know who your students are until you are talking with them, not at them. So they're the ones who know, and they're the ones who have to take the assessments and do everything else. So please don't assume, talk to your students. Um, they want a quality learning experience so that would be the number one tip Um, second one affects everyone everywhere you know we as developers educators talk about 21st century skills you have to be a lifelong learner we're all 21st century employees and workers at the moment so we have to be lifelong learners yeah
4: Um, brilliant and remind us what that word was where um, we challenge our students to, to think for themselves, began with W.
1: Ah, um, okay. It's a phrase, wu-wei, which woo-way. means woo-way. do without doing, effortless action. So it can be taken in a number of ways. Um, but the idea is, you know, I'm the wu-wei teacher because I'm not going to do it. You have your own internal nature as a student that needs to be realized. That's the point of education. So the teacher steps back because their, their inaction is purposeful. Because Brilliant. they don't want to fill up all the space. The student needs to grow into the space.
4: Great. I'm going to take that away with me. Become yeah. a Wu Wei teacher. Well, this
1: is now the Wu Wei podcast.
4: Brilliant. <laughs> thanks, guys. We really appreciate yeah, your time. Thanks so much for coming <laughs> in. Thank, Thank you. you.
3: Well, what a great conversation we had there with Jenny and Charlie. Um, a couple of things that I took away from that. The first thing was the Wu way, um, to do without doing, as Charlie put it. Um, again, that for Charlie, that meant um, being a teacher who supports active learning and enables students to learn for themselves, um, which is, you know, a massive positive. And the other thing as well was around the uh, the value of professional conversations to identify bottlenecks. Once identified, to break down uh, those bottlenecks and break down those problems into those individual components. Uh, and this method is being used in curriculum design. And also it, it got me thinking about how I've used it in the past in terms of uh, my work in organisational development.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that we talked to Ruth Pilkington about in our earlier podcast. And she's written extensively on this in terms of how professional conversations can support academics to develop their learning and teaching practice. But lots for us to think about there. What I really enjoyed from the conversation was that um, helping to remind me that we need to think about the unique cultural context that we're working in and that it's crucial that we really get to grips with that in regard to working in higher education so that we can support authentic engagement and learning. Also, something that um, Charlie said at the end that has stuck with me and something that I want to continue to think about is that he was saying that you don't know who these students are, you don't understand their needs or their ambitions until you talk with them and not to them. And that's something that I think is really, really important. He talked a bit earlier in the podcast as well about how we need to talk to people in a way that motivates them to ensure that we support them in terms of their development and learning. And I think for me that that's really something very important and something that I want to develop in my practice. So lots for us to think about there. Um, Hopefully there's lots for you to reflect on as well in terms of your practice. If you'd like to take your thinking further, then we have added some resources to the website. You can check these out at liverpool.ac.uk forward slash the hyphen academy forward slash podcast. And there's a specific reading list there with um, resources to do with transnational education. Please do let us know what you thought about the podcast. We'd love to hear back from you. You can tweet us at Live Uni Academy, and you can also tweet us directly at eLearnerMatt or at Alexandra underscore Owen. We really would like to hear back from you.
3: Yeah, we would. And we're really grateful for those who have taken the time to either rate or review our show in your podcast providers app. So if you have listened and enjoyed the episode, please rate or even better review the show as it really does help us get noticed and therefore more people will find us as a result. Also, I know a lot of you have listened and not yet subscribed. So hit the follow button and subscribe now and keep up to date with our latest episodes. Bye for now.